This is episode seven of the Blokecast with five-time Paralympian Brad Ness. Welcome to the Blowcast. My name is Brendan Hardman and each week we bring you an inspirational guest or message to help you develop a holistically healthy lifestyle. Thanks for tuning in today and let's get stuck in. Michael Jordan once said, never say never because limits like fears are often just an illusion. He also said, I failed over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. We have an absolute legend of the Australian Paralympic community here today in Brad Ness. He's a five-time Paralympian in wheelchair basketball. He was captain of the Australian Rollers for over a decade. He won silver in 2004 at Athens, In 2008 at Beijing, he won gold. In 2012 at London, he won silver. In 2016 at Rio, Brad was the flag bearer for the Australian squad. He sits up there besides Kurt Fernley as one of the greatest para-athletes Australia has ever produced. He's a mentor of mine, and I truly hope you enjoy this episode. There are so many lessons and pieces of wisdom that you blokes can take away from this episode. As you're listening to this, please take a screenshot and then head over to Instagram and tag me at the blokecast and Bradness at Bradness15 and let us know what you're enjoying most about this episode. Okay, let's get stuck into the episode. All right, guys, welcome Brad Ness to the Blokecast. Mate, how you doing? How's life going? Yeah, not bad. Thanks, Brennan. And uh, thanks for having us on your, on your show. Looking forward to uh, having a yarn. Oh, mate, no. Thank you for, thank you for coming on. And, and can I say before we start, first, thank you for being such a great mate to me over the past couple of years and a mentor. You've pretty much changed my life in the past 18 months, which has been really good for me. And, uh, and so... How is uh, how's dad life going? Before we get stuck into the content, mate. How's dad life going? It's going. <laughs> it's going. There's it's no. Going. There's a million manuals out there, and none of them explain it properly. You've just you've just got to have a crack and uh, work it out. So it's been interesting, but fun, and uh, wouldn't change it for the world. Oh, mate, that's that's unreal, mate. Glad to hear. That's for sure. All right, let's get stuck into a little bit about you. So. Born in 1974 in the country town of Wagen in WA, uh, good little country town out there. What was life like as Brad growing up? Oh, sensational! In fact, we're only we're only talking about it yesterday. Well, we reckon every kid should get a opportunity to grow up in the uh, in the bush. But um, yeah, Wagen, home of the big ram. Um, you know, when we were there, it was when you know the the merino wool was was thriving and you know wheat and sheep were what the whole economy was based on and yeah and we, we were lucky enough to be right in the heart of it and um yeah I, I think i had a real gun before i had a, a toy gun the old air rifle and you know i had a motorbike 50 cc before i had a push bike so yeah probably did things in reverse out there but that's just the way it was and yeah i mean like i said yeah yeah i wouldn't change it for for quids you know and um just very grateful that i was able to be you know grow up in that situation because you know, out there, I mean, 
obviously we didn't have the technology and and everything that you have now. So, yeah, I was I was blessed to to grow up with a football or a tennis racket or a cricket bat or whatever it was in my hands, and yeah, the rest is history. There's a, there is a lot of um, statistics and talk going into there these days that raising kids in a country environment is actually like really beneficial because it gets them outside, gets them into the air, open air and the environment. So I can see, yeah, there's and especially country footy, mate, best best fucking sport in the world. I love country footy. It's better than better than metropolitan footy any day of the week. It's just a it's a good good vibe. And you played a bit of footy growing up, didn't you? Actually, quite a good footballer from what I yeah, and no, I played. Played a bit of country footy. And look, the the one thing I miss about um, country footy is, you know, parking the car around the edge of the uh, oval. And, you know, when someone threads one through the middle, you, you know, you beep your horn. But, Bang on the know, horn. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing I miss the most, though, is hearing the contact. Um, it's just, you just can't replicate it. You know, the, the real hard body on body, the, you know, the hard slap of, you know, someone laying a big tackle and, for whatever reason, you just don't seem to get that anywhere else. But you know, just I think they just go another level harder back you know, out in the bush. And um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. When you wake up in the morning, you just you just inbred into you to, to get outside and and be a part of the day. And um, yeah, whether you know rain, hail, or shine, you you're out there doing something, and there's always something to do. And you just your lessons of your lessons of life are a lot different. Um, growing up, uh, you know, in the country, so like I said, um, you know, very privileged to have uh, privileged to have had that, you know, that upbringing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, when did you actually move to Perth? Because obviously, being a country boy, and I know you moved down there at some point, because I know that's where your accident happened. So, when when did you actually decide to make the move from country to city life? Um, well, it wasn't so much that, um, yeah, I, I made the decision. My my parents made it for me in the sense that. Um, you know, the, the high school in Wagen, be it, it went to year 10, a lot of the kids never attended Wagen High School. In fact, I was down there not long ago, probably about six months ago, and, that, and I think they had nine nine students in, in year, year 10. So my, my parents made the decision and the sacrifice to, you know, save all their, save all their pennies and, and send me away to boarding school so that I could get a, um, had a chance at getting a, you know, a better education. And um, I choose my words you know, carefully because, you know, Wagen does the best that they can do, but obviously being a town of, you know, sort of 1,500 people, it's tough to have a have a full high school there. So, yeah, I went away to school, went to a – I was lucky enough to go to a, an all-boys school up in Perth, uh, Aquinas College, and um, it was there that I sort of got introduced to sport at a, you know, at a, at a very high level. You know, we had a um, – what was a, a waffle coach, a West Australian Football League ex-decorated player that had, had come into coaches and – yeah, that's that's when I moved to Perth. Yeah, that's where I, I learnt the lessons of of how to train and and how to take sports seriously. Which came in, I guess, came in handy in the, in your future when we get into the basketball side of things. But in December '92, you were 18 and you were working on the Rottnest Ferry, which is a the Rottnest is a small island that is situated off the coast of Western Australia, off of Perth, and it's a little holiday island that you go to. It's pretty small, no cars. Uh, well, there's, there's a few cars and there's a, a couple of buses, but that drive you around there, around the thing, but you're not allowed to take cars there. It's you, you get there by the, you know, so when you're on the island, you either get around by cycling or, or walking or, or catching one of the, the, those couple of buses that are on the island. So it's a, it's a beautiful spot. Me and my wife went there last year, actually. It's, it's an incredible spot. But um, tell me a bit about that day or tell us a bit about that day in, uh, on the 19th of December and, and what actually took place and, um, and yeah, from there. Yeah, look, when 
when I was finishing year 12, whether it was a blessing or not, um, I received a letter from the Claremont Football Club to say that I'd been um, selected to go down and, and be a part of their development programs, which is, you know, the Colts and the Reserves. And it, it came just before my my final leaving exam. So you can imagine when my focus has switched to quite quickly. So, yeah, you know, once I'd finished school, you know, I mean, yeah, it was one of those things I was just going to go and, you know, try and go as far as I could with, with football. And, um, yeah, being from a working family, my, my dad had said to me that football wasn't going to pay the bills and I had to get a job. At the time, my sister was working in the ticket office down in Frio, ticket office, selling tickets for the ferries to go to Rottnest Island. And she said, Brad, look, the job, you know, the deckies down there have got a real cruisy job. And, yeah, you should come down and just say you'll do a day's work experience and see how you go. So, yeah, basically I did it. Yeah, it's funny how everything's changed now. And it's not, I suppose I should say funny, I suppose it's changed for the best. But, yeah, when I went down, I just rocked up on the day and they took one look at me. I was already about six or four then anyway. And, um, yeah, they, I could throw a bike up onto the back deck and do all that sort of stuff. So I did a day's work experience. And um, at the end of the night, the skipper said, look, can you go get me a couple of beers? And I said, oh, no worries. And got him a beer. And he goes, have you, have you filled our time card before? And I said, no. So he actually filled out the time card and showed me how to do it and then signed it. So I actually got paid for my um, first day's work experience and uh, asked me what I was doing the next day. And I said, nothing. He goes, well, come back. I've got, I got work for you. Yeah, I always say it was, a, you know, it was a great job for a young bloke because back then we didn't have, uh, yeah, we didn't have the smartphone. So, of course, we didn't have apps like Tinder, et cetera. <laughs> so you couldn't swipe left or right. You had to actually go and talk to the uh, to the opposite sex if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to get a date or something. So it was a little bit different. But um, And what better place to be than on the Rottnest Ferries, you know, so especially yeah. in summer. So, you know, I'd a, I love my job. You know, we'd go surfing and diving and, you know, all the, you know, every day off we'd be over at the island or the rock as we call it. What I used to do is work as much as I could during summer so that during the winter months I could concentrate on, on playing football because Rottnest is one of the worst short water crossings in the world. And a lot of the times in winter, the ferries get cancelled because it is too rough to go across. Yeah. So that was my that was my sort of mentality, and you know, I learned a I learned a, a big lesson early on in in having you know balance of you know work and life, and it wasn't unusual for us to you know upwards of eighty hours a, a week. And um, on this particular weekend, we had these Christmas parties. So what would happen is we'd start work about six o'clock in the morning, do the normal day runs. And then at night, we'd go back and do take a Christmas party to the island. So on this particular night, um, we were leaving the marina and uh, Hillary's. And when we got to the island, it was already getting dark. And back then, there wasn't really any major nav lights. They, they don't want people going to the island at night because it is pretty dangerous. There's a lot of reef around the front of the main Thompson's Bay. When we pulled in uh, to the bay, there was a couple of yachts that had come in and wanted to get a bit of shelter, so they'd pulled up in the alongside the jetty because they thought no one was coming back to the island. So what that meant was instead of tying up in our normal berth, we had to go out on the end of the jetty. Yeah, we're in a 50-metre ferry, so, you know, there's going to be no problems. The only difference was my tie-up line, which is the waistline, the middle line, the central line, uh, instead of being, you know, a metre or so long, was actually probably about five or six metres long on this particular night. So Yeah, right. We had 199 people on board and I had to take my job then went from being a deckhand to like a maitre d', get them all up to the island, make sure they were all okay at the uh, pub and they had a big, you know, they had their big you know, Christmas dinner and everything up there. At 11 o'clock, that's when I got to get them back down and uh, 
that's where my farming skills come into <laughs> came into play because yeah, you had to you know, the islands like you, you know Friday night you've had a couple of sherbets and uh, yeah, no one really wants to go home and uh, herding cats. Yeah, herding cats, and I wish I had a cattle prod, but um, yeah, on this particular night I hadn't lost anyone. I'd got them got them all down and, and got them on the uh, on the boat, and um, yeah, that's that that was sort of uh, mission mission accomplished. Once once we've got them all on the on the boat, that's where my job becomes, you know, pretty crucial. So what I do is I yell out from the jetty to the to the skipper who's sitting up on the on the top level of the boat, mm-hmm. and I say, uh, "Go ahead." And by by saying "Go ahead," he then puts one one of the motors into gear, and and that pulls the boat hard up alongside the jetty and the forward and the aft, or uh, for those non nautical, uh, the forward and the and the back ropes um, become slack and the deckies jump on and they take those ropes off and all the tensions on my main line which is the waistline in the in the in the center of the boat once they're on board and they're they're um they've stored the uh the ropes and everyone's safe i then yell out my next command which is bring it back and by saying bring it back uh they just take the skipper just takes the, the motor out of gear and all the tension on my waistline sort of ricochets the the boat backwards I then jump through a window on the side of the boat and take the rope <laughs> off the bollards on the on the boat and then lean out the window and unhook the rope off the bollard on the jetty. Now, a number of things. If I'd been in our normal tie-up berth, I would have just leant out the window and, and taken the rope off easy. But because we were not in our tie-up berth, we are in a longer berth, I couldn't get the rope off the, uh, off the bollard because the boat had started pulling away from the jetty because... Um, because of the wind and stuff and someone someone yelling out get me a beer or you know another beer sounded a lot like my next command which was all clear so the skipper thought he had sort of heard me uh you know heard me say all clear and the boat's moving away and which meant that the rope that was on the boat started paying out through a scupper hole now the scupper hole is a, a hole in the side of the boat that would be about i don't know about 40 centimeters long by about 20 centimeters 15 20 centimetres high. Mm. And, they're they're um, ankle, ankle level, aren't they, generally? Yeah, ankle level, exactly. And um, so the rope starts paying out through through that. And as I'm trying to yell from this, to the skipper up the stairwell, and I, he couldn't hear me, so I went to, to turn and, and yell from window to window. I actually turned and put my foot in the, in the middle of the rope and it, it caught around my ankle and within like a, a split second tore my foot clean off out through the scupper hole. Um, yeah, you know, and you know, to say yeah, you know, your life changes within a split second. Um, you know, I, I can almost disagree. I reckon a, a nanosecond. You know, I, I watched my foot go, and I, I saw my foot go in the in the rope, and it went that quick that I didn't have time to get my foot out of it. And um, Shit. yeah, yeah, you know, I'm sitting there going, you know, my foot, my foot. Obviously, had no foot. You know, from my ankle down, had been severed completely off, and that's when this guy Fridge come and grabbed me and. His name was Fridge because he's one of the biggest blokes I've ever come across in my life, and he just every, sort of, every bloke yeah. this name's Fridge is is got to be like six foot six and one hundred and thirty kilos. <laughs> yeah, he just sort of grabbed me and held on to me to say that I wouldn't go into into shock, and he was trying to calm me down. And yeah, I'm going, yeah, my foot, my foot, and obviously with a you know with an injury like that, you can only imagine um yeah the mess I'd sort of made on the back deck of the boat. Anyway, I was going, yeah, my dad's going to kill me. My dad's going to kill me. And um, after a little bit, he's like, you know, why is your dad going to kill you? And I said, oh, because I can't kick the footy anymore. And, um, yeah, it's amazing what got through goes through your head. You know, here I am on the back deck. 
no foot, you know, in a in a in a world of trouble. And then you know, the, the first thing that's going through my mind is, um, you know, I can't kick the footy. So, like yeah. I said, I learned at a, a pretty uh, early age of, uh, you know, to have a bit of balance in life. That's for sure. Because, you know, inadvertently, I'd put myself at risk of having an accident like that because I was just, yeah, you know, we were pushing ourselves so hard during summer to do as many hours as we could. So. Straight away, the, the island crew came down and jumped in the water with some tanks and they were looking for my foot when they realised there was no ice on board the boat. So they ran. one of the guys ran up to the pub to get some ice um, you know, in case they found my foot. And when they asked the bar girl up there, she was like, why aren't you guys gone? And she was, the guy was like, oh, well, you know, one of the boys has had an accident and you know, he's lost his foot. We're diving for it. We need some ice in case we find it. And she goes, oh you know, which decky was it? And they said, Brad. It turned out they were talking to my sister. Yeah, the best thing about it was as much as, you know, it was, yeah, it was pretty traumatic for her to, to have to sit there and see a, you know, baby brother, you know, in, in, you know virtually on his deathbed. You know, the, the, the doctors tell me you die within five minutes from an accident like that. Yeah, but for me it was, you know, it was very um, calming to have her there, knowing that I had family with me. And, and you know, it was almost like she was there, I was going to be okay, you know. Um, yeah. It just and so, that, yeah, no, keep yeah. going. I was just going to say, it just happened that Fridge was part of a, uh, you know, like an emergency response group from the Argyle Diamonds. So they came and started doing first aid on me straight away. And yeah, that's, one, that's actually what I was going to ask. This, the next question was, yeah, the, who, who treated you on first aid? Well, that was the thing. If it had been left up to the crew, like they were all in shock and they wouldn't have been able to, they, they just wouldn't have been capable of being able to do it. So these guys, they were just amazing. I mean, like they'd been on a Christmas party for about six hours at least and they just snapped straight into, you know, saviour mode basically. Yeah, they ripped the shirt off my back. They got some bar mats. They got whatever they could to use as a gauze to, to plug, up, plug up the bottom of my foot. Yep. And then Westpac Bank, one of the guys, one of the managers there, his wife was a St. John's ambulance lady and she came in and grabbed the main artery in my groin and yep. and shut off the main artery, the main blood flow to my leg. But this all happened within, you know, like a like a minute of, of me losing my leg, you know. Yeah. And um so they so so they sort of grabbed me and had me there and then you know, one of the things I remember is like I was saying, you know, get the I look at it saying to elevate my leg on. I was like, get the life jackets out of the you know, the jacket. So it was really weird. I was still sort of, as though I wasn't with it, I was sort of with it for a bit of it. And like I said, I saw my foot go. So yeah, you know, and then my sister was on board with me and um yeah, and then yeah, we'd been alongside for a bit and they had sort of stabbed the bleeding and they'd finally found a doctor to come down and I remember him saying, you know, you, you, we're going to have to take your pants down so we can give you this, you know, this needle. I was like, mate, no worries. Go for it type thing. And I think they'd taken the belt off and used that as well to, as you know, a as, a, as a tourniquet. And um, they hit me with a morphine needle. And, yeah, I can tell you now, that was not one of the greatest things that had ever happened to me, you know, because it wasn't so much the the pain of the cut. It was it was rope burn. It was like a burning sensation. Yeah. Every, Every it was like coming in waves, and it was just like every time that wave of bam would come, I'd just have to grip my teeth and yeah, you know, just 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 you know try and ride through it. And and then in the end, the skip we tried to get the doc, you know, the flying doctors and the choppers and that over there, and they were like, no, nah, that's not going to happen um, for whatever reason. So the skipper turned around and said, we're going back by boat. So I got high speed entry. Well, not I, but we got we got 
permission to go high-speed entry into the Fremantle Harbour and we went back by boat. So anyone that knows, you know, that crossing, that's at least half an hour. So yeah. and the fact that they ran up to the pub and came back, you know, that's about a 15-minute, 20-minute venture as it is. So, yeah, we were alongside. You know, they, I think I got into hospital about 2 o'clock in the morning and the accident happened at 11.30 at night. So, yeah. I mean, these, those guys were phenomenal in keeping me alive. And uh, to, put that, yeah. to, put, to put that into a bit of perspective, we in the, in the military, and I guess it's, it, it's probably across all kind of first responders, but I obviously know about it from my military background, but we have something that's called the, the golden window or the golden hour. And yeah. so essentially what it is, is that if someone like yourself has a traumatic injury that hits, um, that's bleeding out, so you would, you would have been bleeding out at the time. Um, like you said, people can, who, who hit the femorata, you can die within five minutes. That's how quick um, you can bleed out in your, in your legs. But essentially, if you don't stem that bleeding and that, well, you need to, first of all, you need to stem the bleeding to be able to stop them from dying within, within five minutes. Uh, so you tourniquet like the, like the, the nurse did or the paramedic did. Um, but if you don't get them to a hospital within 60 minutes, their chances of surviving drop dramatically. I'm talking like, I don't know the exact, exact percentage, but I'm talking like 80% like it drops that they're going to they're gonna live. Whereas if you had have got them there within the hour, then their chances of living are increased. So for you to be, oh fuck, like close to two hours before you actually got into thing and the fact that you're still alive, that is literally unbelievable. Like it's, it's literally a miracle for you to be even alive. Yeah, look, I, I don't, honestly, I, I don't know how they did it. I've, I literally just found out through one of my teammates at, at the Red Dust Healers that um, he's, he's located Fridge and uh, yeah, he goes to the same church as, as, as Robbie Pike. So <laughs> Robbie! It, it's, it's high, 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 high on my agenda for 2019 to go down and sit down with Fridge and whether it's over you know, a beer, a cup of tea, a coffee, whatever, and... Um, Thank him, but um, have a have a good have a good chat with him about you know that, that night. Even though it's you know twenty odd years ago, um, I haven't had that opportunity. Um, you know, obviously I've I've come across him a couple of times, and it's been in a public forum, and we've never had an opportunity to you know really sit down and chew the fat over it. But um, yeah, high on the list because to this day, like you said, uh, it is a miracle, and I don't know what they did or how they did it, but they did it, and I'm forever grateful. Do you remember when you first woke up in hospital? Yeah, I did. And that's a, this is a crazy thing. So I got in Sunday morning about two o'clock and um, they didn't operate on me until Sunday night because I, I got pushed out on the leg. You know, obviously, emergency, it's a crazy thing, but yeah, it's not first in best rest. It, it goes on, um, you know, the seriousness of, of why you're there. And uh, yeah, I, um, I got pushed out on the list because there'd been a couple of car accidents. And so I didn't get operated on until Sunday night where they amputated to about, you know, six inches below the knee. Yep. And uh, I woke up Monday morning and I remember coming to and I was in just the worst pain ever, like worse than when it first got ripped off. And, yeah, but the best thing about that was that I'd seen it go. So when I woke up, I wasn't in shock. I was just like, I'm in pain. Get me something to deal with it, you know. And, yeah, yep. yeah. I was lucky mum was there with me and, and, you know, obviously the nurses came in and, you know, sedated me again and the next couple of days were a bit blurry and then by about Wednesday I um, started to come good and, 
you know, from from Wednesday onwards, it was like, you know what, it's just we got to deal with this. And um, I, look, I don't know why I dealt with it the way I did. Maybe it was because I knew my foot had gone, and I woke up, like I said, and and I was just grateful that the doctors had been able to save my knee. And and I was like, well, if that's all that's happened, then I'm pretty grateful because I knew that, yeah, you shouldn't live for something like that. And and then it was just a matter of getting on with, you know, life. Um, so I had 284 people see me in 12 days and, you know, just that amount of support. And there was people that I didn't know, you know, they're just coming in and fellow amputees and other people that had traumatic accidents had just come in to say, you know, how are you doing and, and how's life going and, this, you know, if there's any way we can help. And, you know, I set my first goal right there. Um, you know, two things happened that were, I suppose, monumental in my life while I was in hospital. One was I set my first goal to get out of hospital. So, you know, my accident happened on the 12th of the 12th, 92. 12 days is obviously Christmas Eve. And I'd always had Christmas Eve with, with my family. And I said, right, I'm getting out of hospital on the on the 24th of November so that, uh, you know, I can spend Christmas with my family. Yeah. And the other one was this bloke come in and said, oh, you know, now you can represent Australia at the, you know, at the Paralympics is the way he said it. And I was sitting there in my bed. I was like, oh, mate, why do I want to go to the Paralympics? And I've got, you know, what sort of consolation prize is that? I want to be this big football player, you know, AFL football player. And now you're telling me I can go to the Paralympics. And, yeah, I wasn't, didn't really give it much thought. But, yeah, the, the big thing was, was that I actually got out of hospital within 12 days and, uh, you know, celebrated Christmas with, with my family. And, yeah, that was like the first, you know, that was my first goal I'd set. And from from then on, it was like, well, hey, you know what, if I can get out of hospital in 12 days, um, you know, what's next? And, you know, the rest sort of just went on from there. And did, I, I read this, I actually read this somewhere. I've never actually asked you this, but did you go back to work within six months? Well, I actually went back to work within 12 weeks. Um, where, I, where I lived... I could see the ferry going to and from the island. I say this a lot and when I'm talking to people and I say, yeah, we, we sometimes whinge and complain about going to work, but when you have work taken away from you, it's a really, it's a, it's a pretty somber feeling. And even at 18 years of age, the fact that I couldn't go to work, it was really weighing on me, you know, like it, it, just, it was, it was torture and it was, it was shit. And I'd sit there and I'd see the ferry coming back in the afternoon and, you know, they'd be hosing down the boat and having a couple of beers after work and it, it was torture. They got me on the wine boats, which was a flat boat going up the river. But you had yeah. to sing and dance. Have to, as a crew member, you have to sing and you have to be able to dance. Mate, I was on one leg, so I definitely wasn't dancing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you, you don't want to hear me sing. So I've yeah, heard you sing. My, <laughs> yeah, she's not good. And look, is look, is is as good as it was being on that on the boat again, I wanted to be on the open water and I wanted to be on the ferry. So, yeah, within within sort of well, six months to the day, I actually got signed off to go back on the ferries. And I went, you know, I walked down that jetty um, to the to the boat and went back to work within six months. And, yeah, I, it was, I didn't want the accident to determine my life, to, to dictate who I was going to be and what sort of life I was going to live. And, yeah, you hear the saying, you know, you fall off the horse, you get back on. Well, I wanted to go back, even, even if it was just for one day, even if I just did that job for that one day, went to the rock and came back again and said, you know what, I've done it, I'm done. But, you know, I, I went back and loved it. And, you know, it was like, you know, nothing had changed. And I was just, I, I was, 
you know, I was just grateful to be able to go back to my job. And So how did you then get into basketball? Yeah, it's one of those things, you know, like, you know, the people that are going to be listening to this, to this podcast, I suppose they're giving me a bit of respect to, to hear my story. You know, it's one of the things I say to people, you know, if someone's going to have the time of day to, you know, to stop you and, and, you know, have a yarn with you and stuff, you know, give them the respect at least to, to hear them out because you don't know how that person's going to change your, you know, your course of your life. And, you know, this, this old bloke, Billy Mather Brown, had been ringing the house saying, you know, would, would Brad be interested in playing, um, you know, coming down and playing wheelchair basketball? Mate, I won't say he's an ambulance chaser, but, yeah, he's passionate about, <laughs> he's, he's, he's passionate about, you know, disabled sports or para sports. And look, finally, to just to, to get him off my back, I decided I'd go down and have a crack at, you know, this wheelchair basketball. And yeah, but when I'd finished, I was like, mate, I love this sport. You know, when, when's your next training session? And But it turned out old Billy had been to the, the original Paralympics in Rome in 1960. Wow. And, uh, and it was just, I was just... I was just so lucky that I'd I'd come in contact with Bill and mate, he's, he was hard as an old you know old leather boot and never took a backward step in his life. You know, I suppose I was very lucky because he instilled that in me straight away. You know, and you know to give me that hardness and you know I just loved it and I just wanted more and more and more and I just yeah the more they threw at me the the more I accepted the challenge and the opportunity to go to to go to a higher level was there. I just had to put in the hours and, and learn how to push the chair. So that's how it sort of happened. And, you know, next, next minute I'm, you know, I'm in Melbourne playing for Dandenong and challenging for championships. And from that, I ended up at Texas at, at a full ride scholarship. I'm at the University of Texas, you know, studying and, and playing wheelchair basketball. So, you know, the real, I suppose, ironic thing was that that guy said to me, you know, I would have been around the 15th of the 12th you know, 1992, now you get to go to the Paralympics. In, in the year 2000, I got to go to my first Paralympic Games um, in Sydney. So, yeah, forever grateful for, for that opportunity. Then your career itself, it, it, it's, an, it's an incredible career, you know. You're a five-time Paralympian from, me, from memory. You've won uh, gold, you've won bronze, you've won silver, you've won two, two world champs, you've uh, come silver and another world champ. It's spanned over 20 years as a player and then as the last two years, you stepped up now as coaching uh, the assistant coach for the Rollers and then the, the coach down to 23s. What do you think – so the, the career in itself is just incredible itself, but what do you think your biggest achievement was? <laughs> Look, I, I think one of my biggest achievements was, was, you know, I suppose getting off my ass and, and getting, my, getting my life into gear. Like I never had counselling when I, when I first lost my leg and I still haven't had counselling. Um, I, pro- I suppose I, I dealt with it as an 18 year old kid would deal with an accident like that. His mate, my mates got around me and we drank slab after slab and, you know, be- pretended we were 10 foot high and bulletproof. And, you know, <laughs> I suppose, you know, back, back then, uh, yeah, 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 I should have gone and spoke to someone and, you know, dealt with a few things then, but yeah, we just sort of, you know, every time we, we ended up, you know, falling over, um, yeah, I had a mate that would pick me up and, you know, drag me two steps forward until I could, you know, do it myself. And after that, you know, I think winning gold in Beijing, the fact that we would we had sat on a balcony after getting silver in Athens in 2004 and as a group said, we're going to go one better and we're going to sacrifice everything. And, you know, when I say sacrifice, I mean, I missed one of my uh, very good friend's weddings. He wanted me to be in the bridal party and I turned it down because I had a uh, pretty important game of basketball to 
to, to play in, in Italy. And then, yeah, I've missed pretty much all all my uh, nieces and nephews, um, you know, bare things. I've missed my you know, grandparents' funerals and, you know, the list goes on. Um, basketball was always first, but, yeah, I was very lucky. I had an understanding family and I, and I had a lot of understanding friends that knew that, um, you know, I was 100% dedicated to, you know, to getting to the top. And, you know, when the flag goes up and you hear the uh, national anthem being played and you've got that big gold medal piece of bling around your neck, yeah, I mean, sitting here now, I've got goosebumps and you never forget it. And, you know, it, it is it is a special a special moment. Yeah, you just know that you've done it not only for yourself, but your friends, your family, and now pretty much the rest of Australia because, you know, when the Paralympics are on, everyone's tuned in and everyone gets around you. So I suppose the, the biggest thing for me was... To, to get that gold medal, it was for, for all the people. It was for the, you know, the 283 people that come and saw me in hospital. Yeah, it was for my family, my friends and, and everyone else that had helped me in those, you know, 16 years from when I had my accident to, to when we won it, get to that point because I don't care what anyone says. You, you, you don't do it on your own. You do it with the assistance and support from every man and his dog that's got anything to do with your life. We talk about greatest moments, but then what, what do you think was your hardest point of your career? <laughs> I don't think you have hard parts. Even my accident, my accident was challenging. It was yeah, like yep, yep. life goes on and life's not going to wait for you. So what am I going to do and how am I going to go about it to be able to do what I want to do? And, and you just got to look, sometimes you got to stop and look outside the box and, and work out a way on, on how you're going to achieve the task that you want to do. And it's the same way I look at it with my career. I would say the hard parts, losing the gold medal in London. I've never watched the game. I probably never will watch it. That was hard to take. Yeah, we were on fire. We'd won the Beijing in 208. We'd won the World Cup in, in 210. And we went into, you know, London 212 just on fire. And, yeah, we hadn't been behind in all the tournament. And, you know, to get get down by a couple of points in the third quarter in in London and, and not be able to reel that back in and, and, and lose that. Yeah, that was probably the, the, you know, the lowest point in my career in the sense of that, you know, you, you, you just think, hey, you know, we only lost by a couple of points. What could I have done better? What could I have done in the last four years that, that would have allowed us to, you know, to go forward? And, you know, even though it's a team sport, you, you know, you do, you do start to look inside yourself and your soul and, and to say, hey, you know, could I have trained harder? Could I have been quicker? You know, could my jump shot have been better? You know, could I have defended better? Um, you know, you just start analysing everything you did to, I suppose, blame something on yourself. At the end of the day, it's, it, takes you, it takes you a long time, but when you do, you know, when you do realise that you've actually won a silver for your country, you know, it's sort of a, you know, you can get a bit of solace out of that. But... Yeah, it, it definitely should have been gold. And, you know, that's just something that an opportunity lost that you can't get back. So now we switch, I guess, into the into the National League where you you still play, well, I don't know if you're planning on playing this year, but you, you played last year and uh, you, you're coaching the, the Red Dust Heelers where, where we both, where we're teammates. Um, the Red Dust Heelers themselves, they come under the banner of the Outback Academy and... I'd like you to just give everyone that's listening a bit of background about the Outback Academy. What is it? Where did it form? How did it come about? And, and what, do you, I guess, is your mission for, for the Outback Academy? Yeah, look, the, the out, well, the, the Healers formed in a, 
a little community called Rollins, about 30 minutes outside of Bunbury, which is about two hours southwest of, of Perth. And yeah, it was formerly the home of um, a lot of stolen generation Indigenous blokes that got taken from their families. And you know, I've been very grateful and, and honoured, privileged to, to get to meet not only Les and and Sid and, and a few of the other guys that are that are down there, but also their families and, and be taken in and been treated as mates by, by these guys that, you know, when you listen to their their upbringings and their stories, you know, it's just phenomenal. Claire O'Kelly uh, assisted the boys in, in getting that because the, the actual farm is about 500 acres was going to be sold off by the church that had it. You know, Claire was involved with a group of people that, you know, put together a, a proposal that got these guys the, their home back because if it was sold, they would have lost their home because, you know, like Sid Jackson, who's a legend of the Carlton Football Club, um, past captain, premiership captain, premiership player, you know, he got taken off his mother's back from when they were up at Leonora and then separated from his sisters. And, you know, he went from Leonora, which is way up north, out east, you know, almost desert country to the southwest, you know, and, now, to hear their stories and what they went through is phenomenal. And so Claire was doing a project down there with Les Wallam and a few of the older blokes that are down there. It's called the Respect Program that was being loosely run by, wasn't formulated then, the Outback Academy, but in conjunction with Rollins Village and these guys. And it was a 12-week course to to help young Indigenous people get prepared to go into, into work. So they asked me to go down and, and talk to these young fellas. When I finished talking to them about, and I showed them some footage of Beijing and basically saying, you know, if you've got a dream, if you've got a, a wish or whatever it might be, that if you work hard and you set some goals, you know, anything's possible and you can achieve it. When I finished, I said, like, you know, anyone got any questions? And one of these young blokes puts his hands up and uh, and I asked him, I said, yep, what's your question? And he goes, um, Brad, where are all the black fellas? And he was making reference to the to the actual video that I showed him of of Beijing, and I've heard every question under the sun. Kids asked me how much blood was on the back deck, was the blood squirting out, like all this stuff, you know, stuff that you would think you'd be, um, you know, lost for words. But you know, this young fella going, "Oh, black, where where are all the black fellas?" And the way he made reference to it, I didn't know how to understand it, and I didn't, you know, I just didn't know how to how to approach it. And um, and then I, was, I sort of thought about it, and I was like, "Well, there were none." Yeah, and I started thinking about it, and it wasn't until the next day we'd we'd also done a clinic down there, the um, the World Wheelchair Basketball you know, Challenge, and we had a lot of kids come in and stuff, and and yeah, we got thinking about it, and I didn't know if there was actually any Indigenous athletes in Beijing, and if there was, there would have only been one or two. Now, when we went back to 1960, uh, you've got the legendary Kevin Coombs who yep. was in that team with Billy Mather Brown, who went to Rome. And, you know, Kevin also went to, you know, five Paralympics and, you know, he's become a legend of, of basketball in, in Victoria. Now, they only took 12 people to Rome and he was one of 12. So if you look at the ratio, one Aboriginal player or athlete going to Rome in 1960, and then we fast forward it, you know, close to 60 years and... There's still no real like the yeah. There, I think there was about a hundred and there's about 130 or 140 athletes that go from Australia to every Paralympics, and we're still I think now only got two or three Indigenous athletes. It yeah. shows you that like that percentage is grossly out of whack. It hasn't grown at all. 
But when we started to talk with these young fellas and, you know, we got more involved in, you know, the Indigenous community, especially around Western Australia, we realised that, you know, it's, it's the statistics, something like one in three Indigenous people have some form of disability. So, you know, we were like, hang on. And then the word dis, um, disabled or disability doesn't actually exist in a lot of the, you know, native Indigenous languages. It's always like, you know, grandma doesn't hear too well or, you know, my dad doesn't see too well or he doesn't see because he's blind, you know. But that, the, the way they make reference to disability is different to how we would make it. So yeah, we, we soon realised that, hey, there's, there's, I won't say a need and I won't say niche, but there was an area there that needed to have some light shone on it. So that's how it all started back, back way back with these young blokes at the, at the Rollins, Rollins village. And um, from there we were like, Hey, we need to, you know, we need to be able to shine a spotlight on this and, and, you know, bring some attention to the fact that, you know, there's a lot of indigenous kids out there that don't have the pathways that other kids would have to, you know, to get into para sport. So we started out with the healers and we use the Red Dust Healers as a community vehicle. So sometimes we'll, we'll go off the National League, the back of the National League, or we'll just go into community and, and use wheelchair basketball as, as the icebreaker to, to be able to connect and uh, communicate with other young Aboriginal or, or other Australians that have disabilities in, in areas that um, might not necessarily have the ability to support these kids to, to get into para sports. So, and it might not be sport. It might end up being, you know, a job or apprenticeship or um, might be art and, or music, whatever it might be. But if we can, if we can assist and, and help, you know, create that pathway for these kids, then, you know, great. And, you know, the fact that I come from a small country town and, you know, I was able to go and represent Australia five times um, at, at the Paris, if if I can help anyone do that same sort of, have a, a, an experience like that, then, you know, why wouldn't I? Because all I'm doing is is passing on, you know, what Billy did to me and, and others. So You talk about your mentality now between how you have transitioned from when you first started playing the game to when you, uh, to how you are now, where you stepping more into like a mentorship role i can i can honestly say that for, from first hand ex- experience that that you have really taken what billy's told you and and taught you and then now, now you're applying it because you did it to me like you pulled me out of um we have a, a friend in common i guess ben etridge who used to yep. coach the australian team and he happened to contact you and i was at an invictus camp and just playing a bit of basketball and um for invictus and then he pulled me out and and you kind of said to me, why are you playing in a team? And I said, I don't really, at the time I, I was training a little bit with Adelaide, but I couldn't, didn't have the ability to play with them and I didn't have a team to play for. And you said, mate, here's an opportunity to come and play with us and, um, and brought me into the league as a, you know, as a 30 year old rookie <laughs> into the, onto the, onto the red dust list. So I can honestly say to people who are listening is that you don't just, you're not just words. Like you, you actually, your actions as well. You, what you're doing is actually, or what you're saying is actually what you're doing. And it's, and it's making changes. It's changed my life and it's making changes in everyone's life that Red Dust is and the Outback Academy is, is touching. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I can't believe how much, I mean, I think we did our first community event in 2013 and I don't know how we did what we did, but we, we were able to bring this community event together and, and we went moving from there and, and to see what the academy is today and what we've been able to achieve. And I mean, the number of kids we've reached out to uh, in community now would have to be in the tens of thousands. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just amazing. And, and I love it. Yeah. Like one of the, one of the old, 
I won't call him old, but one of the oldest, Tom Powell. And like Tom says, you know, you know, yeah, you spread out and we stick together. You know, the more we can get out there and talk to people and, and you know, connect people, you know, the better we're going to be. And, you know, one of the things that he really installed in me was, you know, until you heal your heart, you're never going to heal your mind. And, you know, that was so true with me. You know, it's like I, I, I could deal with my accident, but heart, my heart, my passion, you know, coming from me was, was sport and I'd done everything else, but I hadn't been able to get that, that one thing that I really loved in life. And, you know, once I was able to, to get around that and, and, and do that and, and find peace with myself with, with that, I was able to move forward in life. And, you know, basketball's given me that, the healers have given me that. And, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful to be you know, part of the Academy, the Outback Academy. And I just, I just hope that we can keep it going and keep it growing and, you know, because the success doesn't come within championships or anything like that. It, it, it comes with, you know, the, the people that we connect to all around Australia, which is what we've been able to do. And I think it all accumulated when we were, we were invited to go to the, you know, Invictus Games. And, you know, we had nine Indigenous athletes there with a disability competing on court, which was, which was huge. Life's a bit different for you now because you're, you're now a dad. What do, you, what do you think you're most looking forward to in terms of fatherhood? Oh, man, I've only been a dad for four months and every day, you know, little Scarlet brings something new to the table and, oh, look, I'm just, just looking forward to, you know, to, to growing old with, with a daughter and, um, you know, just just being able to enjoy life with her and, and hopefully hopefully being a mentor to her and, and guiding her and, and being guided by her, you know, like letting her live her life and make her choices and, and all I hope is that I can, uh, you know, give her the, I suppose, the, the, the foundations of, of life to be able to make the right decisions and I'll be devastated if she doesn't choose to be a basketballer but, um, you know, that's her decision and, and I'm, I'm fighting her mother to, if she wants her to be a dancer but, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever decision she makes, I just want to be able to be there and, and you know, watch her achieve the, you know, the goals that she sets for herself and, you know, that, you know, I'll be, I'll be happy with that. Being now the assistant coach of the Rollers, which is the Australian wheelchair basketball team, and then the, the coach of the under-23s, what do you think you enjoy now? What's the difference now between your life, between coaching and playing? <laughs> Probably about 10 kilos. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> yeah, to be coaching and, and be guiding the next generation is unreal. And, yeah, to, to be a part of this new, new team, you know, like we came sixth in – in Rio, and that was pretty hard to, to sort of fathom. Um, you know, that was the worst we'd actually done in over 20 years as, as the Rollers outfit. So to, to already be a part of the coaching staff and get back to third in the world at, at the World Cup last year, you know, it's just, it's just unreal. I love being around the boys and, you know, to be able to give back everything that was given to me. You know, like when I say that, I, one of my big things when I coach people, I'll say, look, everyone's going to give you advice. Just pick and choose what you want to take and implement it into your game because that's how you become yourself. That's become that's how you become the unique player you are. You know, when I don't think you should ever try and emulate anyone. I, th- I think you should see what they do well and and see what how you can use what they do well to make you better. But you know, you, you've got to take bits and pieces from you know from different players and 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 different coaches and you know, different people that might come into your life. And that's what shapes you as a person. And that's what makes you a great player. Yeah. And do you have any goals yourself for potentially one day stepping into that head coach role? 
Yeah, look, I, I would love to love to do that. I applied for the for the big the main job back when it was advertised um, after Rio, and uh, and that was because for no other reason was because I love the rollers that much that if I could put my hand up and say, hey, I want to lead these guys, you know, I've been captain of the rollers for for ten years, you know, and you know, I said if I could if if it meant that I could you know coach these guys and given the ability to, you know, maybe go get back to podium, then I'd do it because, you know, it's it's been a big part of my life. I've, you know, I've been in the squad since 1997 and, you know, I, I can't see my life sort of existing without without being a part of the, the rollers' outfit. So, yeah, definitely I'd love to one day be given the opportunity to go into a four-year uh, cycle to, you know, try and win gold for Australia. If I got that opportunity to be able to, to do that for, for 12 young guys that, you know, dedicated their life to be out for that one moment, then, yeah, why wouldn't I? Um, yeah, I'd be mad not to. Yeah, definitely. So between being a father, between all the commitments that you have with Basketball Australia and the, and the National League, which we've just gone through, which is just extensive. I think you're, you're a coach of like four different <laughs> four different things. And then on top of that, you and your beautiful wife, Gio, run a very successful pizza business down in Frio called Magna Pizza. So if you're down in Frio, go and get your Magna Pizzas. Best pizzas in Perth. So it's a good pluck. Um, how do you actually find a balance? How do you how do you do life life balance? Like work life balance. How do you handle the, How do you deal with the stress? Uh, basketball takes away a lot of the stress. You know, quite often I'll just I don't I tell people I haven't sat in my chair, but you know, every now and again I'll go and just wheel around, shoot some hoops, and yeah, just when I'm on court, I forget about everything else, and whether that's coaching or or playing. You know, I just when I'm on court, I'm in my own little domain and. Yeah, that gives me the, I suppose the the relief from everything else. But look, I, I don't know. It's it's one of those things. You just you, you take. I take everything on its merit, and my schedule is my schedule. I, I know what I've got to do each week. I know that Monday morning when I wake up, I pretty much know up until the next Sunday what I'm going to be doing. And I think that's the most important thing is you know being pretty pretty switched on and and pretty prepared in in everything that you do yeah i might rock up late to a few things um because that's life you know life throws your curveballs and sometimes you got to deal with other things like i said i I deal with everything on its merit so not i say not ashamed to but yeah if something needs my attention and i've got to deal with it then i'll deal with it then and there because it's it's better to you know, to deal with something and, and take care of something when it needs to be done rather than push it aside and then think you're going to go back to it because sometimes you won't go back to it or you won't want to deal with it and that will make the problem even bigger. That's one of the things how that I hold, hold myself to is, you know, trying to deal with something straight away. And then on you know, on, on top of that, my family is, is my family and like I said, everyone knows how I operate and they know that basketball, come, you know, it comes first and, and now that I've got a family where I'm sort of changing that that mentality a bit and trying to put the family first. But, yeah, the, everything, you, you just got to, I suppose, not be scared to, to delegate a bit of responsibility. So my staff down at the, uh, the restaurant, they, um, we don't have individual roles. Everyone knows, everyone knows that they've got to be able to do everything so that if I don't turn up, if I've got if I've got to go and train some some kids, or I've got to get on a plane and go to the states, or or go overseas, they know that they they need to pick up the slack, and and they know that they can cover my job, and I've got the trust in them to be able to do that. Yeah, it's just a it's just prioritising what's important in my life, and and at the moment, you know, the family is, and I suppose if I had to look at it, it goes sort of family, um, you know, the 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 basketball, and the, and then the and then the restaurant. So 
a question that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast is to you, what does being a healthy bloke actually mean? It's being able to yeah, admit when you're wrong or yeah, like Tom Power says, you know, it's pride versus proud. And that's a part of his red dust healing that he does. And when he explains it, you know, a lot of people have a lot of pride in what they do. But the way he explains it is that sometimes you've got to swallow your pride. Whereas, and, and there's an I in pride. So it's very individually, uh, individualistic. And whereas proud, there's a U in it. And that U stands for us. And you don't swallow your proud. You know, you swallow your pride. That's the way yep. he puts it. And when he explained that to me, that opened up a, you know, a whole new way of thinking. And, you know, I can be pretty stubborn at times. And, you know, sometimes you've, you've got to be selfish to, to get to the top in, especially in sport. And it's taken, it's taken a lot to, for me to, to sort of break that mentality. And, and Giovanna, my wife's helped me, you know, do that a lot. But, and sometimes we might have a, you know, have a, have a biff as you do in a, in a relationship. And, you know, you, you've, being able to swallow that pride, one of the things that we say is that, you know, whether you want it or not, you got to kiss each other goodnight before you go to sleep. And, um, yeah, and, th- and that sort of thing is how I think I, I try and see my life now and it's in everything. If, I, if I've got something that's going on at work, you know, you've you got to be able to talk about it. You've got to be able to say, even if you don't want to, sometimes you've got to, you know, me as a boss, I've got to admit that I was wrong. And, you know, you might have to apologise or, or say, hey, you know, what you're saying has merit yeah we'll, we'll go that way we'll try that and i think that's where you where i find i get the balance yeah and it's we myself and my wife we kind of have the same um i guess the same rules and the same mentality that you and Gio have like we we are brutally honest with each other and we worked out we had to be when i you know when i nearly took my own life a few years ago and we sat there and we a few months after that and when we were kind of debriefing each other on how we're going and stuff like that. And, and I wasn't, I was trying to not tell the truth because I was trying to shield her from kind of what was going on in my head. And, and in the end, you know, I think, I think it was even her. She even sat down and said, you just, we just got to be honest with each other. Cause if you wake up tomorrow and you're dead, like, what's the point? Like, you know, it's, and so we have that same mentality now that if, if we want to have a tiff about something, we just have a tiff and, and we just get it off the chest and it's, and it's done. And if you find, if you, the more I know I find the more I stew on things, the more it builds up and the more anxious you get about things and, and the more it affects your lifestyle is if you just get it out and get it out in front of you, then especially with a relationship, it it goes a long way to, to building a really strong relationship is being able to have that ability to be brutally honest when you need to be honest. And like Gia does to you when she says you're spending too much time with basketball, you need to come home for a bit. And you know, that's, you just got, sometimes you got to be honest and sometimes like you say, you got to understand where the other person's coming from and, and adjust your lifestyle accordingly. If, if you, if you harbor something and you let it stew and you let it build up, that it will have a negative effect on other people as a ripple effect. And yeah, it might be, it might be my clients at the restaurant will be like, Mate, that guy's a prick. You know, he's an asshole. I'm not coming back here again. Or my staff will be like, you know what? I'm going to go home today because yeah, you know, I just don't want to be here. So it, it's like it, it affects everybody. And or yeah, you know, I might go to training and you know and you know take it out on the on the players, so to speak. And they're going to be going, mate. He's been, you know, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to give him 100 percent because yeah, you know, he doesn't. He's not. He doesn't warrant it because of the way he's treating. So it, it is good to get it off your chest and and be able to you know talk and and deal with it because you find too that you you get a solution to what the problem is. And 
and you find that it's not as bad as it you might might first seem, and yeah. that you can deal with it, and you get the tools to deal with it and and move forward. And I think that's the that's the key right there, just being being able to move forward in in the right way, in a positive way, knowing that you know it is going to be okay, and and you, you're gonna you're gonna work it out. And I can tell you now, when you when you do have a problem and you talk about it and you and you solve it and you put into put into action whatever it is that you might have to do to get over that obstacle or that that wall that's in front of you when you do get over it it's a bloody good feeling and and that's the best thing about it you know and and that's what life's about exactly mate and so if people wanted to uh, reach out to you on social media or anything like that which platform do you mostly operate on and um or do you have any any way that people, if they ever wanted to, to reach out and um, say thank you or just to say hello, what would you what would you recommend? Look, Bradness15 um, is pretty much the, my handle. I've been pretty lucky to, to be able to have the same one. So, yeah, if you look up that on um, yeah, Facebook or you know, Snapchat or, or even um, Instagram is probably my main platform. So, um, you know, most people that do want to try and get hold of me, get through, get hold of me through, through the old Instagram. So, um, yeah, happy happy to have a yarn with anyone and and give anyone um, you know some assistance in, in any way that I can. You know, um, it, it could be in any form. So I'll leave that up to the to the individual. Um, but yeah, Bradness at uh, on Instagram is is normally the way. Awesome, man. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this, man. I really appreciate it. And thanks for being a great mentor to me. And thanks for being a great mate, mate. It means means the world to me. So thanks, each man. No, pleasure and, and, and thanks for having me on. I think what, what you're doing with the uh, podcast is, is sensational and, um, yeah, it, it'll reach out. It'll get to a lot of people and I don't think you'll realise yet for a, maybe for a long time down the track how many people that you um, influence by doing this. So, yeah, thank you once again for having me on there and looking forward to um, shooting a few hoops later on in the year. Yeah, mate, can't wait. All thank right, you. Mate. Thanks, fella. Thank you once again for tuning into the Blokecast this week. That was an absolutely awesome episode. I love Brad so much. And I just love that throughout that whole episode, there was just so many little takeaways that you can get. A lot of it being about sport, being about the indigenous work that the um, that the Red Dust Healers and the Outback Academy does. I was considering taking it out because I wasn't I was almost unsure if it was kind of be, gonna be relevant to the topic. However, once I actually went back and listened to it again, there were just so many lessons that we could learn from that. And I was just so excited to be able to share that with you guys and to be able to get those lessons into your guys' ears. Thank you once again for all the support that we are getting for the Blokecast. However, it's not going to grow unless we get out there and we share this content more. I'm doing my best from my end. Need you guys to help me out from your end. Share this episode with your friends. Take a snap shot or a uh, screenshot of this episode playing on your phone uh, or computer. Add it up to Instagram. Tag me at the Blowcast and tag Brad at BradNess15. Let us know what you think about the episode. Give us a rating or review on iTunes. They count for so much. And we'll catch you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.